Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 30th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. The question of whether and which amendments in the Bill of Rights protect individuals from state action has been stubbornly resisted to any simple answer from the U.S. Supreme Court. Clearly, states can't abridge your right of free speech or religious exercise any more than can the federal government, but states need not indict you via a grand jury or necessarily grant you a jury in a civil manner, though those guarantees are prescribed in the Fifth and Seventh Amendments. In a widely filed case argued Wednesday, the court will once again weigh whether a certain provision in the Eighth Amendment, the Excessive Fines Clause, applies to the states. In the case, an Indiana man, Tyson Timms, pled guilty to selling a few hundred dollars worth of heroin. He received a year of home arrest and five years probation for the crime, but also Indiana sought to seize his $42,000 Land Rover through civil forfeiture, asserting that the vehicle was an instrumentality of the crime since he drove it to where he sold the drugs to undercover officers. His defense, Timms asserted that forfeiture would violate the U.S. Constitution, namely that excessive fines clause from the Eighth Amendment, in particular because the car's value was over four times the maximum fine associated with this crime, which was $10,000. But in the Indiana Supreme Court's view, since the U.S. High Court has never explicitly held that clause as applicable to state actors, Indiana was under no obligation to do so, and Tim's therefore couldn't use that constitutional provision as a defense. So for now, the Land Rover remains in state custody. We'll be joined in a few moments by competing Amici in the case. Professor Beth Colgan, an Eighth Amendment scholar from UCLA School of Law, says the excessive fine clause's deep historical roots demonstrate the provision's fundamental nature and recommend its inclusion alongside the many Bill of Rights prescriptions deemed to apply against states. But she also says the fight here, importantly, is about more than one man's fancy car. She says that without clear direction that states are limited by the excessive fines clause, cash-strapped local governments will increasingly exact fines and forfeitures as a means to keep their books balanced usually on the backs of poorer and politically disadvantaged communities. Professor Larry Rosenthal from Chapman University Fowler School of Law argues in his brief that the 14th Amendment was not necessarily designed as a mechanism through which the Bill of Rights were to be applied to the states. Moreover, he says the practice at issue here, civil in rem forfeiture, itself has long-standing historical support, suggesting the protection against it is not a fundamental one. More practically, though, he says it's eminently reasonable for local law enforcement hoping to deter illicit drug dealing to confiscate any and all instrumentalities of such crimes. We'll hear from both our guests in just a moment. First, let me remind you that, as always, listeners of our show are encouraged to receive one hour of California CLE credit. To do so, just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Now it's time for our opening briefs. Aside from the Tim's argument, SCOTUS heard three appeals. From the Ninth Circuit this week. One's an antitrust case against Apple that will determine whether iPhone users can sue the tech titan for requiring those users to buy phone apps exclusively from the company's app store. As reported in this newspaper by Andy Serby, Apple's attorneys faced skeptical questioning from both sides of the court's ideological divide, suggesting the plaintiff's suit may likely go forward. In Nutraceutical Corp. v. Lambert, the court will consider whether the 14-day period for appealing class certification decisions is subject to equitable tolling, and in Nieves v. Bartlett, SCOTUS must tackle a tricky First Amendment question, namely whether law enforcement may arrest someone based on retaliatory motives, say annoyance at the recalcitrance of an individual the officer is questioning, so long as there is some probable cause to believe the arrestee has committed an offense, even a very minor one. In the Ninth Circuit, a split panel rendered an election law and First Amendment ruling Tuesday, partially upholding Alaska restrictions on political donations, but striking down perhaps the most salient provision, one limiting out-of-state donations to Alaskan political candidates. In dissent was Chief Judge Sidney Thomas, who viewed the latter provision as constitutional. 
two unpublished orders issued Wednesday upheld a district court ruling holding the state of California to certain requirements relating to the confinement of mentally ill inmates who had alleged Eighth Amendment violations against the state. And soon, the circuit will hear the U.S. Department of Justice's appeal, filed this week, of the Northern District's injunction against recent administration asylum policy changes that Northern District Judge John Tigar ruled conflicted with existing immigration laws. The California Supreme Court rendered two rulings this week, both unanimous. One came yesterday affirming the capital sentence in an automatic death penalty appeal. On Monday, the court reversed convictions in a murder case, where the high court deemed the lower court should have stopped proceedings when a deputy public defender raised doubts about her client's competence to stand trial. The defendant had previously been deemed unfit and confined to a state hospital. As Justice Leandra Kruger wrote in the court's opinion, the defendant was then declared competent but quickly manifested signs of schizophrenia. And in a case the high court may take up soon, a fourth district panel cut the constitutional legs from under physicians challenging California's end-of-life option act which made legal physician-assisted suicide in 2016. The panel found that challengers hadn't shown either personal or third-party standing, reasoning that the physicians could opt not to assist patients in ending their lives, and similarly, that their patients could choose not to avail themselves of the new law. The panel majority did not reach a second question presented whether the law enacted in a special legislative session called by the governor was unconstitutional as beyond the scope of that special session. A separate concurrence and dissent by Justice Marcia Slough argued court should have reached the second question, and she answered it also against the challengers. One more California Supreme Court note, our paper will be featuring this coming Monday a profile of Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar. Having gotten a preview of it, I can say it's an excellent piece on the justice's background, personality, and judicial philosophy, and here to tell us just a bit more about it and about Justice Cuellar is the person who wrote the article, reporter Aaron Lee. Aaron, thanks for hopping on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you had a chance to sit down with uh, Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar and wrote a, a great profile of him for a paper. Um, tell me your overall impressions of Justice Cuellar. So he was very much a law professor. He was thoughtful and measured and intellectual, but he was also warm and personable and funny. Um, And what surprised me the most was that he was really candid. He dodged very few of my questions, which was kind of a nice surprise. What uh, maybe were the, the questions that you asked him that you thought yielded some of the most interesting replies? I mean, I obviously asked him about Groban and kind of the future of the court. Um, And he, again, was very forthcoming. Obviously, he didn't comment specifically on Groban, but he kind of talked about how he thinks the future of the court is very much rooted in its legacy and the broader big picture view of the institution. Groban, of course, being Josh Groban, the very likely soon-to-be newest member of the court, uh, the governor's longtime maid nominated earlier this month to fill Justice Werdiger's long vacant spot. But uh, on the point about judicial philosophy and, and the court's role, you write that he views his role and, and that of the justices as sort of a fiduciary type role. Um, tell me a bit more about that, how he sees his role in the, in the role of the California Supreme Court. Yeah, so he said that the justices think of themselves as fiduciaries of the court and of its future. And I think that speaks to the justices' big picture view of the court and why they value consensus so highly. Um, There really hasn't been political or ideological splits on the court, as some might have expected. Um, Part of that is because the court is very collegial and collaborative, but part of that is also because the judges are thinking about the court in terms of its longstanding history and its longstanding legacy. 
And with Grogan and either even beyond him, I think Justice Quayer expects much of the same. So the idea be um, that were there to start to form some sort of clear divisive ideological fault lines that could compromise sort of the way the court is viewed or its its ongoing legacy as a, a court viewed as a, a neutral and fair final arbiter? Yeah, absolutely. Were there any other sort of reasons that the justice gave for um, the reason that the, the court hasn't quite uh, maybe predictably lined up along sort of the ideological lines one might expect? One of the things that Justice Quayer touched on was how large the California judiciary is. Um, it's actually twice the size of the federal judiciary. So I think that points to two things. One is how seriously the justices take their job. Um, but two is Justice Quayer is very concerned with making sure the court's decisions are clear and well-explained. And he's constantly thinking about the practical consequences of the high court's decisions for the lower courts. The California Supreme Court deals with common law and more technical issues around the law than the U.S. Supreme Court. So the lower courts are dependent on their decisions for their day-to-day functioning. And Justice Quayer always has that in the back of his mind. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts on your, uh, your sit-down with, with Justice Quayer? I mean, okay. I think a lot of what's unique about Justice Quayer is that he represents this younger generation of justices who have young kids and they come from a non-judicial background. So it definitely is a different outlook on the court than what we've seen in the past. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a great piece and folks listening should certainly check it out when it's in our newspaper on Monday. Aaron Lee, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. The Supreme Court has never explicitly held that states are limited by the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause, so Indiana recently denied an Eighth Amendment-based defense raised by Tyson Timms when his $42,000 Land Rover was seized after he pled guilty to dealing a few hundred dollars worth of heroin. Professor Beth Colgan from UCLA Law submitted an amicus brief detailing the long history of the excessive fines clause and why it's a fundamental right applicable to state actors. She joins us now. Professor Colgan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So as your UCLA bio page provides, your scholarship centers on sort of the relationship between constitutional interpretation and, and practical effects of that interpretation and principally at the intersection of criminal law and poverty. Likewise, this case exists at the, that intersection too. It presents you know, a somewhat theoretical, abstract-sounding question whether the excessive fines clause is incorporated against the states. But much has been written about you know, the real-world impacts that the answer to that question will have on folks on the ground, in particular folks that are poor. Uh, Tell me a bit about that context and how it motivated you to present this amicus brief. Certainly. So I think one of the reasons why this case has gotten the attention it it has gotten is because of these real-world implications. So in the case itself involves a man, Mr. Timms, who unfortunately became addicted to, to opioids as a result of a workplace injury. And ultimately, that addiction led him to selling small quantity of drugs in order to support his habit. And during the process of doing that, he drove his car on the way to what was to be one of the buys with an undercover officer. And on the way, the police pulled him over and seized and and later sought the forfeiture of his vehicle. And so that's one way in which this 
case is relevant is that what we're seeing around the country is is an explosion of these kinds of forfeiture practices where the police might seize a vehicle, but it might be also your home or cash, uh, your earnings, a variety of other uh, things that can be seized in the course of a criminal investigation. But the case also has broader implications for situations like we saw arise in Ferguson, where there are places around the country, and unfortunately Ferguson is far from unique, where people are subject to a wide variety of economic sanctions, fines, fees, uh, costs, and so on, and sometimes have no meaningful ability to to pay. And so folks are subjected to long-term debt that can have implications for credit, for family and financial stability, for being able to obtain a job or stable housing, and so on. And as a result, what might start out as as a fairly small penalty for a minor offense can turn into lifelong punishment. And so that's the, the sort of background of why folks have become so interested in, as you say, this, this very precise legal question that's in front of the court. Okay, then we'll dive into that precise legal question uh, next. You're, as you said, the, the question is whether the Eighth Amendment's protection against excessive fines is incorporated against the state is at, at issue here. Um, your brief goes to the more predicate question as to whether or not that right is a, a fundamental one, a, a one deeply rooted in our legal history and, and thereby should be seen as incorporated to apply against the state. So how do you go about in your brief answering that more historical question? Certainly. So the, the reason we provided the brief for the court is twofold. So First, the court has, at least as an initial matter, approached the interpretation of the excessive fines clause itself through what we call an originalist frame, meaning that they've sought to understand what the meaning of the clause would have been at its ratification in 1791. Uh, But second, the the most well-recognized approach to the incorporation question is whether the right afforded by the excessive fines clause is deeply rooted in tradition. So again, that's an historical inquiry. And the last time the court addressed the historical record regarding the excessive fines clause was in 1998. Uh, Subsequently, there has been and continues to be development of a historical record. And so we felt that it would be important to provide the court with some insight into that developing history to aid it in its determination on incorporation. And so in the brief, we reach back to Magna Carta, which of course is the the Charter of Rights that was set out in 1215, and then through the English Bill of Rights adopted in 1689, which itself includes an excessive fines clause identical to our own, and then forward to understandings of the clause in the United States Constitution in colonial and early American history. And, And what we believe is that that history shows that the overarching principles that are embodied in the excessive fines in our Constitution have deep historical roots really reaching back centuries. I'd like to dig into that those deep historical roots in just a second. But one other question, uh, one more recent question, if you know the right has this very long-reaching historical basis, why did Justice Scalia in a dissent that you cite in your, your brief uh, in 1994 say it needed to be rescued from obscurity? What Where did it go and, and how has the court worked since then on you know, referencing and, and uh, rescuing this this right? Sure. So there have actually only been four cases in which the court has interpreted the meaning of the excessive fines clause. And the first of those cases didn't reach the court until 1989. It was a case 
called Browning Cherris Industries of Vermont versus Kelco Industries. And it was actually about the question of whether a punitive damages in a private civil lawsuit constituted fines for purposes of the clause. And the court said, no, th- those are not fines and so not protected. But that, you know, why do we go from 1791 to 1989 before the, the court has a moment to engage in the clause? Is it is an interesting one? I think there needs to be a tremendous amount of additional study about that question, but a handful of things might help to explain it. So one is that for a good part of this period, it, up until Gideon versus Wainwrights decided in 1963, there's no constitutional right to counsel outside of a very limited set of cases in which the court held, usually in death penalty in cases and cases involving long-term prison sentences, that there would be any right to counsel at the federal level. So it wasn't until 1963 that there's a right to counsel. And these are complicated claims. So you might imagine that they weren't being raised without an attorney present to raise them. Um, that then becomes more complicated because a little about a decade after the court decided Gideon versus Wayne, right, they decided a case called Scott versus Illinois, in which they held that if the only penalty that's imposed is financial, if it's only fines or forfeitures, there's no right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. And so in places where we see some of the most egregious harms in these cases are places where counsel wouldn't be present unless the person could afford to hire their own attorney. And so one of the possible reasons why we don't see a tremendous amount of litigation in this area is because there haven't been attorneys present to make it. But there, you know, there, again, as I, I mentioned, really does need to be more study about why that might be happening. Just a, a couple of pieces from your brief I wanted to pull it. It is really just chock full of amazing source material and, and historical uh, moments. So, so one, the, the beginning, towards the beginning you cite the language from the Magna Carta, and if you allow me, it uh, is, quote, that free men shall not be immersed for a small fault, but after the manner of the fault and for a great fault, after the greatness thereof, saving to him his contentment. Um, so a couple of words there that folks probably aren't terribly familiar with, but also two sort of separate ideas that you say are laid out there and and continue to this day to be the two main pillars of the the excessive fines class. Could you explain those? Sure, absolutely. So one of the key pillars and a, a word that that those who listen to the oral arguments likely heard a lot is the idea of proportionality. And as a very general sense, the idea of proportionality is, is the idea that the severity of the punishment should be proportionate to the seriousness of the offense and the offender's culpability for it. Because if it was disproportionate, if, if there was too much punishment imposed for a low-level offense, then it would be constitutionally excessive. So let's look again at the language you, you cited from Magna Carta. What you're going to hear, again, is the word immersed. I think this is one of the words you were saying folks might not be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, Immersements were the predecessor of what we now call fines. And so the language, a free man shall not be immersed for a small fault, but after the manner of the fault, and for a great fault, after the greatness thereof, is really saying that the seriousness of the offense has to be taken into account. Is it a small fault or a great fault? And that's critical for understanding what the appropriate amount of the immersement or the fine can be. And then the second term that we see in Magna Carta is this idea of that has come to be known as salvo contenimento. But, and the basic idea there is that we need to save to the person who's being fined his livelihood. 
So the language that is key is, again, that the free man, Magna requires saving to him his contentment, and also goes on to say, and a merchant likewise saving to him his merchandise, and any other villain than ours shall be likewise immersed saving his wainage. And that's the idea, again, um, perhaps a better way to put it, is is ensuring that person can financially survive the punishment. And so there's, it's very much an open question in the excessive fines clause. The court has not had an opportunity to answer this question yet as to whether or not when we're considering whether something is constitutionally excessive, whether we need to consider the financial consequences of the penalty on the person against whom it's imposed. Yeah, I'd be curious to get your thoughts as to, you know, it, it seemed like the court was maybe focused a bit more on the former. The, the chief justice did ask the question about uh, that contentment point, and Wesley Hattat, the attorney for Institute for Justice, and, and Tim's mentioned your brief as describing that, yes, folks are supposed to be left with something to maintain their livelihood. Uh, but it did seem like most of the focus was on whether or not this forfeiture of the $42,000 car in an instance when the maximum fine for the penalty for the crime was, I think, 10000 did that seem disproportionate? Did it seem like sort of the balance of the argument was more towards that proportional idea? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And so, and the reason is because that is at the heart of what the state of Indiana was arguing in the case. So the, you know, there are really sort of three levels of history that are in play in this case, uh, because there is both, as I mentioned earlier, the original meaning of what the excessive fines clause is. So Another layer is whether, given that interpretation of what the clause does, the question, does a civil forfeiture constitute a fine? That's actually the bulk of the discussion at oral argument and where the state of Indiana's arguments live or die. But in making those arguments, they they tended to conflate this question of proportionality, which is not a question of whether something is a fine or not, but whether it is excessive or not, uh, with the question of whether the excessive clause protects civil forfeitures. So Indiana's arguments essentially that all of the historical record points to the conclusion that at the moment of ratification of the Eighth Amendment, people would not have understood in rem forfeitures. So those are forfeitures in which the property is treated as the defendant rather than the property owner. But that wouldn't have been understood to constitute punishment. And because the test the court has adopted for whether something is or is not a fine for purposes of the clause is whether it's at least partially punitive, then that would mean that forfeitures are not punishment at all, and then they cannot be fined. Uh, and that plays into the third layer of historical argument, which is whether, in light of, of the above, that informs whether the protections afforded by the excessive fines clause are deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions, which is the primary test for incorporation. So in other words, what Indiana is arguing is that because the historical record shows that forfeitures weren't fined, then protection of those forfeitures can't possibly be deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions, even if protections for other forms of fines are. And there are two major problems with that argument. One is that anytime anyone argues that the entirety of the historical record points to one answer, we should be wary because historical records are muddy. Uh, we, we can only rely on what survived. It's rarely the case that things are quite so cut and dried. And, of course, the court looked at history in 1993 when it decided in a case called Austin that these types of in-rem forfeitures would have been understood as at least partially punitive and thus constitute fines for purposes of the clause. And that conclusion was disputed as a matter of history to some degree in a later opinion in 1999 written by Justice Thomas. 
though that opinion also endorses the conclusion that the modern version of civil forfeitures constitute punishment. But since 1998, there's been continued historical research into the historical use of forfeitures, and that continues to be mined. And in what we do in our brief is present the court with what has long been known and what has developed since it last took up the question in the late 1990s. And the evidence tends to point, doesn't all point in the same direction, but tends to point in the direction that historically, even the kind of in-rim forfeitures at issue here would have been understood as a form of punishment. And the second problem that the state of Indiana has is that historical in-rem forfeitures, their, their argument relies on the idea that, that the use of in-rem forfeitures historically are identical to how in-rem forfeitures are used in modern times. The court has actually previously rejected that idea in, in the 1998 opinion written by Justice Thomas. He said that, you know, whatever history may be, modern in-rem forfeitures have morphed in a way that makes it clear that they serve as punishment. So even if the state were right as a historical matter that in-rim forfeitures were not seen as punishment, it would mean that the protections for the types of forfeitures used today are still deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Yeah, that, that case that you mentioned, the Austin case, it seemed interesting, that argument, because it couldn't quite tell exactly whether the Solicitor General of Indiana was needed the court to overturn it to get to the result that he wanted. Multiple justices essentially tried to say, you hey, you, you need us to overturn this case to win, right? And he didn't commit really to either position, I didn't think. But it does seem like a, a tricky one if at the federal level, this sort of forfeiture is deemed encompassed by the uh, excessive fines clause. Then if the rights incorporated, that would seem to spell trouble for the state's case. I think it does spell trouble for the state's case. If, if the court decides to adhere to or at least not revisit its prior precedence, then there's, I think, little question that the state loses on the incorporation question. I just wanted to pull out one other historical sort of highlight from your brief, because it seems to relate to the, the modern policy concern of that you cited from, for example, Ferguson. It sounded like it was a rocky time in 17th century Britain, where a, a seemingly sort of revenue-strapped kingdom there set up this star chamber, a sort of cryptic, secretive uh, forum where largely enemies of the kings would come and, and then have asserted against them large fines to help raise some revenue for that kingdom. That seems to sort of relate to the worry that some justices noted that poor localities might use these fines just to supplement their own budgets. And that then prompts the reaffirmation of the, the excessive fines clause in the English Bill of Rights, right? That's exactly right. So James II, in particular, was known to have used the Star Chamber to impose heavy fines on his political enemies. And so the English Bill of Rights, it adopts the Excessive Fines Clause, which is, again, the same language as the clause we would later adopt in the United States. And it was adopted to serve as a form of protection against those very abuses. And so in the first of the four excessive fines cases to be decided by the United States Supreme Court, the court carried that history forward to interpret the clause as protecting against the use of economic sanctions for purposes unrelated to the underlying criminal convictions, such as for political gain or for revenue generation. And of course, what we're learning more and more today is, as I mentioned at the beginning, that many jurisdictions across the country are in fact using economic sanctions as a form of regressive tax to generate revenue for all manner of public uses, many of which have nothing to do with the charged offense or even the criminal system. And we also know that in many places, those practices are targeted against 
the most politically vulnerable communities. And so that's why I think you hear Justice Sotomayor in the oral argument, for example, raising the concern that what we're talking about here is really just a return to the star chamber unless the clause can afford some protection. One sort of counter to that seemed to be raised by the the chief justice. You know, even if maybe broadly speaking, there are problems with local governments trying to raise revenue on the backs of poor folks by using civil forfeiture and fines. In this particular case, Mr. Timms used this vehicle to go to a meet to sell drugs. It could be viewed as an instrumentality of the crime. The chief justice seemed to say, "Why isn't that reasonable as a a thing to forfeit um, this part of this thing he used to to do the crime?" And we were thoughts on sort of the merits question there, I guess, with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things you hear is both the Solicitor General for Indiana saying the the vehicle is forfeitable, and you hear Mr. Tim's counsel saying the vehicle is forfeitable, right? And so it seems like there's this sort of strange convergence of the two sides agreeing on on this point, but actually they're not. They're in total disagreement. So, what Indiana is saying is the vehicle is forfeitable because it isn't punishment at all, and therefore it is not a fine, and therefore the excessive fines clause shouldn't apply, and therefore it shouldn't incorporate it as to this kind of forfeiture. What Mr. Tim's counsel is saying, the vehicle is forfeitable because it is a fine, but whether that fine, whether it is a fine is merely the threshold question. You would then engage a secondary question about whether given it's a fine, it is or isn't constitutionally excessive. And what the Chief Justice's questions and some of the other questions that, that were uh, asked during the oral argument are getting to is, well, how would we measure excessiveness in this kind of case? Mm-hmm. Now, that's a question the court does not actually have to answer to make a decision on incorporation. Yeah. And just one more on that assertion made by the Indiana Solicitor General that this sort of forfeiture isn't a punishment, so it's sort of outside any you know reach of the federal government. It, it seemed like an awfully damaging part of the argument against the state's case when Justice Breyer responded to, to that point uh, with a hypothetical as to whether under that line of reasoning, the state could, say, confiscate someone's Bugatti for having just having driven a few miles per hour over the speed limit in true Breyer fashion, joking that, of course, that's what Bugattis are made for. And it seemed like the, the state of Indiana had to concede that point that if their argument is this sort of forfeiture is essentially outside uh, federal protection when it's after the commission of a crime and it's an, it was used in that crime, the state seemed to have to, to concede that point, right? That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. And I think that what the Solicitor General probably would argue is that what that means is it's not a fine for purposes of the excessive fines clause, but not necessarily that it's constitutional, that the the owner of the Bugatti might have to find some other constitutional provision like the due process clause to make its claim. Uh, that, for example, is what happens after the court determined punitive damages do not constitute fines for purposes of the excessive fines clause. Companies who'd become subject to punitive damages then started making claims under the due process clause instead and, and successfully. So you might imagine at some point downstream the court getting to the idea that there are some subset of forfeitures that don't constitute fines, but that doesn't mean they're constitutional. So in some ways, what the state of Indiana might be doing is is kicking the it's the hopes of preserving forfeiture practices for the time being, but knowing at some point that the shoe might might drop, but hoping that that is at a much later date. 
starting to wrap up. Why, did you have any thoughts on why the court seemed to be very curious about questions that went beyond the question presented to the, the, the abstract core incorporation question? Uh, it struck me as perhaps that, as Justin Kagan said, even if the court were to say this right is incorporated against the states, it might not really be successfully invoked that often because very rarely are, say, um, prison sentences deemed cruel and unusual, though that portion is incorporated against the state. Uh, the chief justice seemed worried about agreeing to this right being incorporated without sort of setting up further rules. I guess, what were your thoughts on why the court seemed worried about that? Well, I think one read on why so many of the questions were headed toward the merits of what what is the scope of the protections that the excessive fines clause affords is that they're all pretty certain about how they feel about incorporation, and it's, there's not much to ask. Um, so that's, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the state of Indiana successfully, you know, muddied the waters enough to say, you know, that the, the idea of whether or not this right is deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions really is dependent upon some of these merits answers. I suspect, you know, and of course, we'll, we'll find out soon um, where the court goes with this. I, I suspect that the, the court will ultimately say the clause is incorporated, the bigger question is whether they will do more framing than that, whether they, they'll signal in some way where they think the limitations on the clause might be. And it's tricky because, as, as you mentioned, the, the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan had some questions related to how does this relate to the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause. And so the, the court has to be somewhat circumspect about saying anything here that might unintentionally unwind or complicate that clause as well. Uh, I would be surprised if they do too much in that direction, given that that is not something that was briefed for the court. But we'll, as I said, we'll have to wait and see. Certainly. Well, a lot of interesting questions, right? We'll await the answers to. But for now, uh, Professor Beth Colgan from UCLA, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. In Professor Larry Rosenthal's view, the 14th Amendment was not necessarily intended as a mechanism for incorporating the Bill of Rights. And moreover, he argues in his amicus filing that the state acted perfectly reasonable in conducting a civil forfeiture, in this case, of an instrumentality of a drug crime. Professor Rosenthal teaches, among other courses, First Amendment law and criminal law and procedure at Chapman University Fowler School of Law. Also clerked at the High Court under John Paul Stevens. He joins us now, Professor. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so we'll dive into your amicus brief here. It supports the state's position that this particular seizure at issue, the forfeiture of the car, not constitutionally infirm. The main thesis of your brief is is that the 14th Amendment, as originally considered, drafted, ratified, interpreted, did not incorporate the the Bill of Rights. Walk me through that, starting perhaps with with the text of, of the amendment. How is there some conflict or um, in, your, in your view, some evidence that the Bill of Rights is, is not applied to the states through that amendment? Well, our, our brief actually takes rather nuanced position. Uh, in, in our view, the historical evidence is actually extremely confusing and unsatisfactory. There were some people involved in the ratification of the 14th Amendment that wanted to make the Bill of Rights forcible against the state. There were other people that did not have that objective. Probably the bulk 
of the people, both in the Congress that crafted it and the states that ratified it, really didn't focus on that issue because it actually was not central to the debates over the ratification of the 14th Amendment. But if you start with the text, which is the only thing that was ratified, the text is, at best, an extremely unclear way of making the First Eight Amendment forcible against the states. You know what the text says? That no state shall deprive any person of due process of law. That's an odd way to incorporate the First Eight Amendments, especially since one of those Eight Amendments also says that you have to respect due process of law. So it would be an odd kind of redundancy for the due process clause to include all eight amendments in the 14th Amendment, but only one clause of the Fifth Amendment when it appears elsewhere in the Constitution. The 14th Amendment also says that no state shall deprive any citizen of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. But that's an awfully odd and indirect way of securing the first eight amendments against the states, especially since at the time the 14th Amendment was written, citizens of the United States had no privilege or immunity to use the first eight amendments against the states. So I think the more you look at all the evidence, textual evidence, historical evidence, the more confused you get. I, I think this is a line of inquiry that leads nowhere. Yeah, it has always struck me similarly that if the, the drafters at that point did definitely want to drop in those Bill of Rights to apply against the states. They probably could have just said, we hereby apply the Bill of Rights to the states, could have taken a shorter route to it, had that, I suppose, been the most important intent. There's also, you cite some uh, case law and some um, some post-ratification consideration of the amendment that doesn't really seem to get to whether or not the Bill of Rights applies to the states based on that amendment for kind of a good while, right? Yes, interestingly, the, the justices of the Supreme Court who were around when the 14th Amendment was actually ratified, they somehow missed the fact that this text was supposed to make the First Eight Amendments applicable to the states because the court ruled to the contrary again and again. Maybe the, the most compelling evidence is that if the 14th Amendment had been understood to make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states, you would have expected to see the state try to comply with the Bill of Rights after the 14th Amendment was ratified. But in fact, even prior to the ratification of the 14th Amendment, there was a movement in the state to reject the requirement that felony charges be brought by grand juries. The grand jury even then was falling disrepute as a kind of archaic, ineffective institution. And in the wake of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, even more states stopped using grand jury, despite the fact that the Fifth Amendment's grand jury clause requires the use of grand juries to bring felony charges. One of the reasons I think that very few advocates of the 14th Amendment focused on incorporation of the Bill of Rights is because aspects of the Bill of Rights were actually coming into grave doubt, especially the grand jury clause. And that's one of the reasons why the historical evidence cast great doubt on this notion that the 14th Amendment just incorporates the Bill of Rights. Because, for the most part, everybody seemed to miss the fact that the 14th Amendment, on this view, required states to use grand juries. In fact, states didn't think they had to use grand juries, and the grand jury was falling into disrepute. One of the interesting things even today is that 
one of the very few things on which prosecutors and defense lawyers seem to agree is that the grand jury system is not a good system, especially in state courts where you have very high volume uh, of criminal cases in many urban jurisdictions, and sending all of them to the grand jury would not only be greatly inefficient, but it would deprive criminal defendants of the right to test the evidence supporting a charge at a preliminary hearing. Prosecutors don't like the grand jury system, by and large, and defense lawyers don't like it. So this notion that, oh, of course, the Bill of Rights has to be applied to it's at best an overgeneralization, because back in the 19th century, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, there was great doubt about at least some aspects of the Bill of Rights being applied to the states, and that doubt persists. All that notwithstanding, the ad argument on Wednesday, the two newest justices, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, fairly uh, bluntly suggested that all of that um, is, is at this point kind of academic, that Justice Gorsuch suggested to the Indiana Solicitor General that, you know, hey, can't we get one thing off the table? We all agree. The excessive fine clause is incorporated. Justice Kavanaugh said, isn't it just too late in the day to argue that any of the Bill of Rights are not incorporated to apply against the states? Had, had you been there in place of the Indiana Solicitor General, what would your reply to them have been? Well, it's always perilous to speculate about what's on the mind of justices based on oral argument. But of course, it's not too late in the day to argue that, for example, the grand jury clause does not apply to the state. It's never been applied to the state, and the majority of states don't use grand jury. Not too late in the day to argue that the civil jury requirement doesn't apply to the states. In fact, we have an elaborate system of small claims courts in this country that is able to provide swift and efficient justice on claims that are for a modest amount of money but are often very important to the litigants, especially poor and disadvantaged people. If the civil jury right in the Seventh Amendment applied to the state, the whole small claims court system would have to be dismantled, and it would be much more difficult to administer justice in these kinds of cases. So my own sense is that what Justice Kennedy and Justice Kavanaugh were trying to take off the table is the, the idea that the excessive fines clause has no application to the state because in Indiana's position can be interpreted as denying that the excessive clause, the excessive fines clause, does not apply to state and local government. Indiana's brief is kind of artfully ambiguous on that point, but if that is Indiana's position, and, and that certainly one plausible way of understanding your argument, that is a pretty broad and probably untenable position. And, and my sense is that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch may have been at least a bit frustrated that Indiana was not willing to concede on the basic points so that the court could focus on what I do believe is, is the truly important issue in the case, which is whether the forfeiture before the court in that case violated the Constitution. Uh, both sides seem to be much more interested in litigating very abstract conceptual case about the excessive fine clause than litigating the actual facts before the court, whether this vehicle that was used on a regular basis, basis to traffic heroin, can be forfeited consistent with the United States Constitution. That's the important issue of the case, and uh, my sense is 
that a number of members of the court really wanted to deal with that question and not the more abstract question that the lawyers on both sides were arguing. I mean, that's certainly the most pertinent question in the case before the court here, though I think you would agree that the broader question whether or not the excessive fine clause does apply to the states has ramifications, of course, to many other folks that are in state court uh, that might be affected by whichever way that question is answered. So, And certainly it's the question presented. So it, it does seem like an important one as well. But I, it did strike me that there was some tension in the courtroom between which portion of the, the the question the justice wanted to focus on, whether or not the the clause applies against the state or whether or not here in these specific facts this seizure was okay. And it, it did seem like there was some ambiguity as to just whether which of those points were being argued at any given time. I, I don't know if you had thoughts about that. I, I agree. I, I actually think that there, there's something extremely frustrating about the way this case was litigated. Because on both sides, very abstract questions were litigated. Neither side really actually wanted to, to talk about what Mr. Kim's did. seems to me that in the, you know, in the real world, most people looking at this case would say, well, the idea of forfeiting a vehicle that's used to haul heroin around Indiana as part of an ongoing heroin trafficking scheme, well, there's nothing troubling about that. But instead of focusing on the heroin trafficking at the center of this case, both sides focused on really very abstract conceptual issues, and I think that frustrated many of the justices. And, and I think it is frustrating. This is one of the strangest pieces of litigation with which I've ever been involved in, in my now pretty lengthy career because neither side actually wants to talk about the facts of the case before the court. Both sides are talking about lots of other things and pretty strange way to litigate this case. I, I can understand why Mr. Kins doesn't want to talk about the facts of his case because he's a heroin trafficker. It's a little odder to try to grasp why Indiana didn't want to focus on the facts of that case. And that may have caused some problems for Indiana. It seems possible that the, I mean, that, that some of the fault doesn't lie with the, the attorneys on either side, but rather the underlying court, the Indiana Supreme Court, also didn't deal with the facts here, right? It made a fairly blunt holding that, you know, we don't think this clause applies, and so we're not going to you know, give any credit to the, the defense of Mr. Timms that it does. And case closed. So it seems like that the, the court there, the court under the Indiana Supreme Court, bears some portion of the responsibility for the way in which this case gets presented and then argued. Do you think? Well, that's right. You know, the interesting thing about the way this case was litigated in the Indiana Supreme Court is, in that court, the Indiana Attorney General's office took the position that it hardly matters whether the excessive fines clause applies to the states or not because this fine was not excessive, and that's the only thing the Indiana Supreme Court needed to decide. Now, it was an entirely sensible way to litigate it, and the Indiana Supreme Court, even though it wasn't asked by either party to hold that, no, the excessive fines clause simply doesn't apply to the state, it decided on its own to make that statement. Now, that said, the Indiana Attorney General decided to defend the Indiana Supreme Court's reasoning, and that may have contributed to... The, the kind of abstract conceptual quality of the, the litigation before the United States Supreme Court is we tried to point out in, in, in our briefs the job of the Supreme Court to review judgment, not statements in opinion. 
there were some statements in the Indiana Supreme Court's opinion that were overbroad. But in the view of my clients, there was absolutely nothing wrong with that judgment of the Indiana Supreme Court upholding this forfeiture. So let me get to that. The the conclusion you think the court should reach that there's nothing wrong with this forfeiture, even if, as you say, maybe it doesn't matter so much whether or not the excessive force clause applies to states, you still can reach that result. In kind of conducting the constitutional arithmetic, usually you would lay out that predicate point, you know, whether or not you're, deal- you're existing in a world where you know, that clause constrains the states or not. So if your argument is, hey, this forfeiture is fine, does that concede that predicate point that, yes, the excessive fine clause applies here? We just don't think this is an excessive fine, this type of forfeiture? Well, you know, when you're, when you're talking litigation tactics, I think there are two entirely appropriate ways to go about litigating this case if you're defending the judgment of the Indian Supreme Court. One way is to just concede that the excessive fines clause applies to the state. So, and, and that's, I think, what Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch were asking Indiana to do so that they could discuss the issue of greater concern to them. The other way to litigate the case is to say, not the job of the Supreme Court to decide abstract questions, the job of the Supreme Court to decide the actual soundness of the judgment in the case before it. And in this case, it hardly matters whether the excessive fines clause applies to the states or not, because there's nothing wrong with this forfeiture. Either approach is an entirely plausible way to handle the case. I, I think that some members of the court may have been troubled by Indiana's, one aspect of Indiana's position, which was, even if the excessive fines clause does apply to the states, it applies to state courts in a different way than it applies to federal courts, which is a way of, of slicing the bologna that gets awfully thin. And I do think that that troubles some justices since there's a lot of momentum to hold that once you incorporate a right, it applies to the states in exactly the same fashion as it applies to the federal government. Yeah, there was some dispute over whether that is right, that there's sort of a parallel dual track that a right can be yielded by an individual as against the state or federal government equally, or whether it seemed like Indiana was saying you might might want to narrow down, winnow down this Eighth Amendment clause a bit before you incorporate it, and then when it gets incorporated to the states, it's a it's a narrower right that did seem problematic for some of the justices. Yes, I, I do think, you know, in fairness to Indiana, lawyers often get seduced by history. That's the, the, the allure of originalism. And if you start looking at the historical evidence, while there is some historical evidence that suggests the 14th Amendment incorporated the Bill of Rights, although there's also historical evidence pointing in the opposite direction. Indiana is right about this much. There is a great deal of historical evidence suggesting that at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, nobody thought it was problematic to forfeit property used to facilitate the commission of a crime. And so Indiana starts from that historical premise and says, well, then you just can't have a constitutional problem here. Now, that also suggests the the limits of historical analysis. History is really very clear, but no matter how clear history is, the court resists the kind of sweeping conclusion that Indiana's argument at least suggests that the excessive fines clause never applies to the state. And so, despite the fact that 
Indiana's on pretty strong historical ground when it comes to forfeiture. The court is just deeply disinclined to hold flatly that the excessive fines clause has no application in the state. And that is certainly not the position my clients took. My clients focused on the actual facts of the forfeiture issue. And it sort of sure there are a number of, of facts, I suppose, in this particular circumstance that would differentiate what's happening here between maybe one of the, the more salient hypotheticals posed at argument was by Justice Breyer, who um, pushed the Indiana Solicitor General to, to concede that his interpretation would allow or at least wouldn't raise any Eighth Amendment problems were Indiana to seize someone's Bugatti for speeding by five miles over, over the limit. What would your response to Justice Breyer have been when he posed that question? Well, we, we actually discuss our view in, in the case, which is that the forfeiture of property that is central to the commission of a very serious crime is not constitutionally troubling, whereas the forfeiture of property that's more peripheral to the commission of the crime or that involves a crime with less direct threat to public health, safety, and welfare could be problematic. So, for example, personally, I, I have no problem conceding that uh, Justice Breyer's speeding hypothetical would run afoul of the Constitution. But it seems to me extraordinary, as, as we are now in a country in the throes of a true opioid crisis, that anyone would debate the soundness of forfeiting a vehicle used to traffic heroin across the state of Indiana on a regular basis. That seems to me to be quite an easy case. And I think that, uh, you know, aside from the rarefied world of, of Supreme Court litigators, if you asked people in the real world whether it was excessive to forfeit a vehicle that's used to traffic heroin, you wouldn't get much disagreement on that point. The problem, of course, with taking what seems to be broad and unqualified positions is that you run into outlandish hypotheticals like Justice Breyer's outlandish hypothetical. I mean, the the reasoning that, that you give there does seem like, that seems similar to that laid out by the Chief Justice who has essentially said the same thing when questioning Mr. Tim's attorney, saying that, uh, hey, this is an instrument of the crime, this was a, a drug sale, and that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to be forfeited if you're if you plead guilty to, to this crime. But let me push back a little bit. I mean, the all you say is true, but also true is that the maximum fine for this crime is around $10,000. The car seated is four times that, $42,000. I think the total amount of drugs he was, Mr. Timms was found to have sold, or at least that he pled to, was in the area of a few hundred dollars. Again, it's a $42,000 car. I mean, there does seem to be some imbalance between those numbers, Right. Well, and, and that's precisely why it's really perilous to think about fines and forfeitures as if they were interchangeable. There's a reason that the legislature passes forfeiture law in addition to the fine. As a number of the briefs before the court argue, I, I think this, is, this point is made most persuasively, actually, in the ACLU's brief. Laws imposing heavy fines are very problematic for at least two reasons. The first is that fines 
disproportionately burden the poor and disadvantaged. And second, they are often very hard to collect. So there's a reason that Indiana's general fine law is capped at $10,000, because there are good reasons to cap fines in order to avoid disproportionate burdens on the poor and disadvantaged, as well as creating large volumes of essentially uncollectible fines. Forfeitures are quite different, however, because when it comes to forfeiture, there's no collection problem. The state already has the property. And forfeiture achieves a kind of rough proportionality because for drug crimes, it's usually very difficult to figure out how much money the defendant has made from drug trafficking. Drug trafficking is covert. It's a cash business. The cash is concealed. There's no good way to know how much money that the, the defendant has made. But forfeiture means that the defendant winds up losing whatever the defendant's investment has been in the vehicle used to facilitate the drug trafficking. And in that sense, the forfeiture is proportionate to the defendant's asset based on his ability to invest in that vehicle. And it achieves probably the best brand of rough proportionality that is possible in the kind of situation where you really can't determine what the defendant's asset and ill-gotten gains are. So forfeiture is vastly preferable using a system fine, and for similar reasons, it's also preferable to incarceration. Incarceration has a lot of undesirable collateral consequences. It also costs the taxpayers a lot of money. And it really is quite odd, as Chief Justice Roberts points out, to say the way to protect liberty here is to tell the state, instead of imposing forfeiture or imposing a fine you'll never be able to collect, just throw Kim's into prison for more years. That is an awfully odd way of protecting liberty, to, to tell the state to make even greater use of incarceration. And to the extent that you force states to abandon fines and forfeiture, you wind up simply promoting over-reliance on incarceration. It seemed like uh, Justice Alito argued a bit along those lines, too, when he said, okay, even if this fine seems fairly excessive, let's compare it with the available alternative, this offense, I believe, carries a 20-year potential sentence. So he says, you know, compared to 20 years, $42,000 doesn't seem too bad. It might seem odd for us then to go ahead and say this is a, an excessive fine right. um, if the alternative might know. be in jail for 20 years. I agree, although I want to push back a little bit on the way you framed the question. You say this fine seems excessive. My response to that is excessive compared to what? Well, you can't really assess whether the fine's excessive you know how much money Tim's made from dealing heroin. You and I don't know how much money Tim's made from dealing heroin. And there's no reliable way for the state of Indiana to figure that out. So once you acknowledge that that is an important uncertainty, forfeiture achieves a far greater measure of proportionality than it does by just assuming that in assessing proportionality, we just have to disregard how much money Tim's made from dealing heroin, since there's no reliable way to determine it. The reason people deal heroin is to make money. And if you impose a financial penalty, you're eliminating that financial incentive and you're doing it in a way that does not rely on draconian prison sentences. One more question just on on the sort of salutary nature of the civil forfeiture. It, It did seem like an important piece of the Indiana Solicitor General's case or argument that, you know, this is the sort of thing that's happened 
throughout history. Uh, civil forfeiture is different from fines. It, it sort of should be, if not immune, just sort of, you know, not easily reachable by these Eighth Amendment protections. Then. But it seems like what stands in the way of that argument, or what the Solicitor General kept bumping up against, was this federal ruling, or I'm sorry, this previous ruling in the Austin case that essentially says, you know, no, civil forfeitures are definitely encompassed by this portion of the Eighth Amendment. And the justices seemed to sort of prompt him to say whether or not he wanted that case overturned. It seemed like a problematic case for Indiana's side. What did you think about that? Well, you know, that's one of the reasons why we, we did present the court with an alternative version. If the court's inclined to revisit Austin, the Indiana Solicitor General's position permits it to do so. But there are reasons why the court might not wish to revisit Austin, despite the impressive historical evidence that Indiana has assembled. Our brief does not quarrel with Austin one little bit. Our brief accepts Austin and all the applicable precedents, and our brief says that whatever has been established by Austin and the other cases, it casts no doubt on the forfeiture of a vehicle used to traffic heroin on a regular basis. Okay, then just one last one for you. I'd be curious to your concluding thoughts on, I guess, overall how the arguments when It seems like the prevailing view is that the court is inclined to say at least that this clause applies against the states. Do you think it'll go further and get to the merits here? What do you think? Well, you know, the easy thing for the court to do in this case is to decide as little as possible. To just say the excessive fines clause applies to the states, and the lower courts then need to figure out how it circumscribes the power of state and local governments to use forfeitures. Now, if you if you want to bet on the Supreme Court to decide the case in the easiest way possible, you're probably not going to lose much money. But the problem with holding that that minimalist is exactly identified by Chief Justice Roberts in his comment that. What that will produce is a real tsunami of litigation in the lower courts about the Eighth Amendment limitations on forfeiture. And that tsunami of litigation is really quite unnecessary. That's exactly why our clients presented uh, an alternative. The fear, if this case is litigated in a way that just presents an abstract, conceptual question about incorporation, is that you wind up just creating more confusion on what is really a terribly important point, the extent to which the Eighth Amendment permits forfeiture. If the court addresses broad issue, which in our view is, is really quite easy, then you won't have this kind of tsunami of litigation about the extent to which the Eighth Amendment limits the power of state and local governments to utilize forfeiture rather than either fines or imprisonment. Okay, well, we'll certainly uh, find out here in a couple of months, but we'll leave it there for now. Professor Larry Rosenthal from Chapman University Fowler School of Law. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show for November 30th, 2018. Thanks one more time to all of my guests, Aaron Lee, Professor Beth Colgan, and Professor Larry Rosenthal. Also, thanks go out to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you very much for tuning in. Please don't forget that for having listened, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. 
Also, don't forget to find us in the various podcast streaming avenues, including the podcast app and really anywhere you get your podcast. Just search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. You should be able to find us there and listening there, rating, reviewing us, um, and sharing our, our podcast. They're uh, super helpful as it helps folks find the show. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.